If you are new here with us, we are going through a book of the Bible. In this series, we've kind of originally coined Nehemiah. We haven't got cute with it or fancy. We're just, we're walking through the book of Nehemiah. We're looking at God's grace and his love for his people and how he draws them out of exile to himself. And so we've reached the third chapter of Nehemiah. And if anybody read ahead and kind of know what's in Nehemiah 3, yeah, Nehemiah 3 is a big, long list of Hebrew names. So I've invited none other than my beautiful wife, Megan Johnson, uh, to come and to read the word for us this morning. You know, really, we got to use the gifts in the body, right? I studied Hebrew, and I still can't read it. If you would stand in honor of God and his word, listen, this is going to be a little bit longer section of scripture, and here's why we're going to read this. These names, you might not know any single person that's, that's read about today, but names in the Bible matter because that's how God builds his kingdom is through his people. And so we may not look at every list of names in Nehemiah from here forward, but today we're going to look at all these names, and we're going to appreciate, we're going to listen for God's spirit to move as we hear God's word together. So take it away. All right, Nehemiah chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Then Eliashib, the high priest, rose up with his brothers, the priests, and they built the sheep gate. They consecrated it and set its doors. They consecrated it as far as the Tower of the Hundred, as far as the Tower of Hananel, and next to him the men of Jericho built, and next to them Zakur, the son of Imri, built. The sons of Hassaneah built the fish gate. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired. And next to them, Meshulam, the son of Berechiah, son of Meshezabel, repaired. And next to them, Zadok, the son of Baana, repaired. And next to them, the Tekoites repaired, but their nobles would not stoop to serve their lord. Joiada, the son of Peshia, and Meshulam, the son of Besadia, repaired the gate of Yeshina. They laid its beams and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And next to them repaired Melatiah, the Gibeonite, and Jadon, the Moronathite, the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, the seat of the governor of the province beyond the river. Next to them, Uziel and the son of Harahana, goldsmiths, repaired. Next to him, Hananiah, one of the perfumers, repaired, and they restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Rephiana, the son of Hur, ruler of the district of Jerusalem, repaired. Next to them, Judea, the son of Hurumath, repaired opposite his house. And next to him, Hattush, the son of Hashabniah, repaired. Melchijah, the son of Harim, and Hashab, the son of Pathos Moab, repaired another section and the tower of the ovens. Next to him, Shalom, the son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, repaired, he and his daughters. Hanan and the inhabitants of Zenoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars, and repaired a thousand cubits of the wall as far as the dung gate. Melchijah, the son of Rechab, ruler of the district of Beth Hakaram, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And Shalom, the son of Kohozeth, ruler of the district of Mezpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and covered it and set its doors, its bolts, and its bars. And he built the wall of the pole of Shelah of the king's garden, as far as the stairs that go down from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, the son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Bethzer, repaired to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool, as far as the house of the mighty men. 
After him, the Levites repaired. Rehum, the son of Benai, next to him, Heshabiah, ruler of half the district of Keilah, repaired for his district. After him, their brothers repaired. Bavai, the son of Hinnadad, ruler of half the district of Keilah. Next to him, Ezer, the son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section opposite to the ascent to the armory at the buttress. After him, Baruch, the son of Zabai, repaired another section from the buttress to the door of the house of Eliashib the high priest. After him, Merimoth, the son of Uriah, son of Hakaz, repaired another section from the door of the house of Eliashib to the end of the house of Eliashib. After him, the priests, the men of the surrounding area, repaired. After them, Benjamin and Hashab repaired opposite their house. After them, Azariah, the son of Maaseah, the son of Ananiah, repaired beside his own house. After him, Benuai, the son of Hinnadad, repaired another section from the house of Azariah to the buttress and to the corner. Pelal, the son of Uzai, repaired opposite the buttress and the tower projecting from the upper house of the king at the court of the guard. After him, Pideah, the son of Perosh, and the temple servants living on Ophel, repaired to a point opposite the water gate on the east and on the projecting tower. After him, the Tekoites repaired another section opposite the great projecting wall as far as the wall of Ophel. Above the horse gate, the priests repaired, each one opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, the son of Emer, repaired opposite his own house. After him, Shechemiah, the son of Shechaniah, keeper of the east gate, repaired. After him, Hananiah, the son of Shelemiah, and Hanan, the sixth son of Zaloth, repaired another section. After him, Meshalem, the son of Berechiah, repaired opposite his chamber. After him, Melchijah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired as far as the house of the temple servants and of the merchants opposite the muster gate, and to the upper chambers of the corner. And between the upper chamber of the corner and the sheep gate, the goldsmiths and the merchants repaired. Let's pray. Father, this list is a bunch of names that I can't pronounce that are the identity of people that have built your kingdom, people that your spirit has moved through to make one for such a time as building the walls around Jerusalem as your people come back from exile. God, would you use your word today in such a way that it would move us, that it would shake us, we would see that your spirit is so much more at work around us and in us than we could ever imagine. Father, would you show us that, that unity and diversity is a thing that you do. It's not an option, but it is what you do. It is your heart, it is who you are. Would you shake out all the uncomfortable things that are inside of us right now? And Father, if you offend us, I pray that it be your spirit and not me. God, move this morning. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. What is Nehemiah 3? Nehemiah 3 is a picture of the kingdom being built. Now, what you'll notice about all of the different people, and I'll go through a few of them here in a few minutes, is that they don't have everything in common, right? They have different vocations. They're from different places, they're probably even different races. I mean, there's all kinds of differences that are at play in the building of the wall. All kinds of different things that are at play. 
As we're looking at this idea of unity and diversity today, I just want to go ahead and let the cat out of the bag and tell you where we're going. Our big idea is this. What we're going to keep coming back to today is that the evidence of the unifying work of the Spirit is found in us building the kingdom together. It's found in us building the kingdom together. In other words, how would we know that God has made us one unless he proves it? And how does he prove it? He proves it in how we build his kingdom together. And so in, in the book of Nehemiah, it was building physical walls. I mean, these guys didn't have that much in common except their desire for rest and the peace of God to come back into their lives. The presence of God was their desire. And for us, it's the same thing. Rebuilding the broken down walls that are all around us in God's kingdom. This heart for mercy and justice. All of these things that are around us for mentoring young men in Richards Middle School. Whatever it would be. It's rebuilding the kingdom and what God is in passion, what he's inflamed inside of us. And we're, we're doing that together even though we're different. Sometimes it's helpful to look at what something is not to help tell us what actually is. So I'm going to show you a video clip from a sitcom that, that is kind of a guilty pleasure of mine. I, I love to partake of. It's called The Office. Some of you have seen The Office. Some of you have not. Michael, who's the boss in The Office of Dunder Mifflin Paper Company, he has this diverse staff of people. And he has this desire, he has this desire for his staff team to know how to, to relate to one another in diverse situations. And so what he does in this video clip uh, is he has each one of the people in his office come into an office and they put index card on their head and it has a different race that they're assigned. And they have to, they have to role play around and, and treat one another with this unification kind of ideology, you know, just, just really wanting to be one together in the office. And so it's, it's ridiculous as I'm, as I'm kind of playing it up for you, but just watch the side screens and check this out. This is how not to do it. Okay, do me. Something stereotypical so I can get it really quick. Okay, I like your food. Uh, Outback Steakhouse. I'm Australian, mate. Pam. No. Pam, come on. I like your food. No, come on. Stir the pot. Stir the melting pot, Pam. Let's do it. Let's get ugly. Let's get real. Okay. If I have to do this, based on stereotypes that are totally untrue, that I do not agree with, you would maybe not be a very good driver. Oh, man, am I a woman? Now, okay, it's official. Everyone in the room is offended now, so now we can get going. Ridiculous, right? Ridiculous. And here's the, here's the truth. Whenever we relate to anyone in the flesh and we try to achieve unity apart from God's Spirit, we will never find it. We will always find a form of false unity, whether it's turning a blind eye to you know, the physical color of our skin or the physical condition like socioeconomically, you know, how, how we relate to one another. And so what we're going to see today is that God's unifying work in our lives is played out in how we build the kingdom together. If we don't build the kingdom together, we never get to see the beauty of who God is as we participate in his work together. So here's how this is going to go down this morning. Uh, we're going to look at Nehemiah 3 a little bit, and then we're also going to run 1 Corinthians 12 parallel with Nehemiah 3. And we're going to kind of go in and out of both of them together. So here's kind of the points. I want to tell you the three points of where we're going. The first one's a little more substantial than the other two, but I know some of you like to know where we're going. Here's the first reality. Everyone in the kingdom has equal value. They're valued the same. The second one is this. Everyone in the kingdom 
is equally essential. And the third one is this. Unity in the midst of diversity only exists when these two realities are true in God's people. So let's, let's, look, at, let's look at point number one here. Everyone in the kingdom has equal value. So let's, uh, let's remember kind of what was going on in Nehemiah chapter 3 here. As I was thinking through Nehemiah 3, I was thinking through all these different vocations that the people have. I mean, listen to some of these. I mean, there's, there's Eliashib and, and some priests that are building the wall together, right? And so kind of they're, they're building the wall in some places and they're repairing the wall in other places. But to give you a picture of the wall, the wall was about five miles in circumference. Uh, it was about 30 feet above ground and it was about 15 feet in breadth. That's how deep it was. It was a big, big wall. And so Nehemiah kind of tackles it from a team approach. You've got Eliashib. You see that in verse 1, 17, and 22. Uh, you've got the men of Jericho. So these guys don't even, these jokers don't even live in Jerusalem. They're building the wall. The, the Tekoites, the Gibeonites, and other places. Uh, you've got perfume makers that are coming in to build the wall. You've got goldsmiths in verse 32, you see. You've got Shalem's daughters. You've got women that are building the wall. You've got a group of bachelors, Benjamin and Hashab. You've got temple servants, you've got city guards, you've got merchants. And get this, you've even got government officials that are building the wall. I mean, so you've got everybody from high-ranking folks to low-ranking folks. You've got servants, and you've got like governors that are building the wall, like district leaders in the kingdom that are all building the wall. So would you say that's a diverse group of people? The common mission united them. The common mission was we've got to build this wall. And what did the wall represent to God's people? The wall would have given them a sense of identity. That even though they're in exile, even though the Persians have taken over, that they are still God's people and that they are protected. It would have also given them a sense of protection. So we see, we see God protecting his people, building the wall. So they were seeking that and they were unified by this common mission of doing that. So each of these people that we've mentioned today have value. Even though I don't know them, I'm tempted to, when I read these parts of the Bible, I'm tempted to, to, to gloss over them. But they have value because they're image bearers of God. That's what gives someone value. Did you know that? God is the one that places value on life. Nothing else. Not status, not, not, not the school you go to, the neighborhood that you're in, not the color of your skin, not anything other than the fact that we are made in God's image. And no image bearer of God is greater than another image bearer of God. Well, that's a beautiful reality. So what are the implications of that? What does it actually mean to be an image bearer of God? It means that when we look at one another, we see the fact that this brother or this sister reflects God in a different way than I do. And it is an opportunity for me to know God more when I share in fellowship with people that are different than me. It's an opportunity. But instead, we're tempted to let our differences divide us, aren't we? We're tempted to, to what, what would it be, let me, let me just paint a picture for you. What would it be like for New City Church to be a church, a community of people that was only explainable by the Holy Spirit? That, that you could look at our church and you'd say, man, I don't see why those people are getting together. I mean, why in the world would these people be hanging out together? We've got the poor, we've got the rich, we've got every color of skin, we've got every nationality. Here in Lawrenceville, it's a very diverse community. Why are these people together? It makes no sense. What would it be like if that was the only explanation for what we had in common? 
was that the Holy Spirit had drawn us together. And what if we actually believed that that was the only thing that really mattered? In Acts chapter 2, there's this beautiful description, Acts 2, 37 through 42, and it says, all the believers were together and they had everything in common. And we read that and we, man, that's awesome. Now, let me ask you this question. Do you think that all the believers really had every single thing in common? No, they didn't have everything in common, but what they did have in common was the only thing that mattered, and that was that they were in Christ. That's the only thing that mattered. So that's what it means there. So each of these, each of these people and each of, each of the people in Nehemiah 3 and each of the people that are in this room and each of the people that are in Lawrenceville, Atlanta, Georgia, United States, in the world, each carry innate value that's given by God to them. And no one has more value than the other. And I, I'm reminded of this this example in the scriptures that Jesus gives where he's talking about lost things, okay? I think it's in Luke chapter 15, parable of the lost son, parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep. So in the lost sheep, what does Jesus do? He leaves the 99 to go after the one. He leaves what's very valuable, 99 head of sheep, I mean, this is valuable, to go chase down one lost sheep. This is the God that we serve, friends. This is what he has done for us. He has left the 99 to come and to find us. We are agents of reconciliation in our community. We bear the gospel inside of our bones, and we have the great news that we can be reconciled to God. And our work as a community is in a lot of ways to to leave the 99 in some ways to seek the one. God puts that in our heart, this this ministry of reconciliation that 2 Corinthians 5 talks about. He puts that inside of us. But you know what our temptation is? It's to settle for false unity. It's it's uh, It's to place ourselves in the midst of people that look like us, dress like us, live like us, work like us. It's it's and you know you know what happens when we do that? Is that our lives are explainable apart from the Holy Spirit. But we don't need the Holy Spirit to do that. I don't need the Holy Spirit to create community with a bunch of white folks that are middle class in Lawrenceville, Georgia. I don't need the Holy Spirit for that. I can do that in the flesh. But I can tell you what I do need the Holy Spirit for is to live in community with a group of people that looks like this right here and lives like this. We need God's Spirit to make us one. And then you know what happens? Then the work that we put our hands to is so much more effective because God has made us one. And the only thing that matters is that he's the one that gives us value. That's the only thing that matters. So if you have your Bible, let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and get in. I'm preaching a pre-sermon here. So uh, let's get into 1 Corinthians 12. I'm going to start reading in verse 4, and I'm going to read through verse 11 right here. Give you a second to to turn there, those of you that are flipping pages. Verse 4. Now there are varieties of gifts, but the same Spirit... And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities or work, but it is the same God who empowers them all in everyone. Same God. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. For to one is given through the Spirit the utterance of wisdom, and to another the utterance of knowledge, according to the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healing 
by the one spirit. To another, the working of miracles. To another, prophecy. To another, the ability to distinguish between spirits. To another, various kinds of tongues. To another, the interpretation of tongues. And all these are empowered by one and the same spirit who apportions to each one individually as he wills. Fascinating. When we think about building the kingdom, even though we're a diverse group of people, not only do we look diverse, live diversely, but we're gifted diversely. You don't have the same gift that I do. Some of you do. Some of you don't. I love what he says in verse 4 and 5. He says, hey, there's, a, there's varieties of gifts, but hey, guess what? It's the same spirit that's given them. There's varieties of service, so the activity that we're involved in as the church. But guess what? It's the same Lord that called us to serve. There's a variety of work and activity that we do in building the kingdom. But guess what? It's the same God working through all of us. So when someone becomes a follower of Jesus, we believe that the Holy Spirit comes upon their life. When they confess with their mouth and believe in their heart that Jesus is Lord, God gives a gift to each of us. It's called the Holy Spirit. And the scriptures describe the Holy Spirit as this. The Holy Spirit is a deposit that's deposited into our hearts, into our lives, to remind us that Jesus is coming back for us. It's a guarantee that Jesus is coming back for us. And he has, he has impressed upon our hearts his law. He has shown us what is right, what is wrong. He has given us himself. And when you read this word and the word comes alive to you, it's because the Holy Spirit is at work in your heart and God is revealing himself to you. So also the Holy Spirit, you know, when God gives it to us, it, it manifests itself in us in unique ways. There's a lot of talk about spiritual gifts in our community and what they are and are some more important than others and, you know, which gifts should I go after and all this kind of stuff. But I want to just unpack just very briefly, I'm not going to preach a whole sermon on this, very briefly, kind of a theology of spiritual gifts, especially the miraculous gifts, the sign gifts as theologians call them, for New City Church. So there's, there's word gifts, teaching, preaching, all that kind of stuff, and then there's sign gifts. And the sign gifts that are, that are kind of most confusing to Christians are, are gifts like the gift of tongues, the gift of prophecy, and the gift of healing. And so I just want to talk briefly about that. Some people believe that these gifts have ceased, that they no longer are in operation. That, that is, that the word gifts are still going forward. We're still preaching. We're still teaching. We're still doing all of those things. But some people think that the miraculous giftings have ceased. And I want to show you why they think that. And then I want to tell you why I don't believe it. Okay, so let's turn to 1 Corinthians 13, uh, just a page over to the other side. And I'm going to start reading in verse 8 through verse 10 or 12. I don't know yet. So let's read this. 1 Corinthians 13, 8. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. So if you read that at first glance, you could say, okay, I could see where they're saying, hey, these gifts cease. They no longer exist anymore. But if you go on and read on in the context of verse 8, here's what it says. Now we know in part and we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. When I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. But when I became a man, I gave up childish ways. For now we see in a mirror dimly. But then, that's a key word, then the day that Jesus comes back, face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. 
So we see in the scriptures here this idea that the gifts will cease when Jesus returns. And why will the gifts cease when Jesus returns? Because we will have the full manifestation of Jesus' presence in our midst. The Spirit won't have to remind us about Jesus anymore. He won't have to magnify Jesus because Jesus will be magnified in our very midst. We will be with him face to face. Now, that being said, I think the gifts of the Spirit, especially the miraculous gifts, are different than they once were. They operate in a different way, meaning I don't think they've ceased, but I think they're different than Acts 2. I don't hear about a lot of people that are, that are running up to touch Pastor Ryan and, and they're healed like they did with Peter. So the gift of healing is a little bit different than it was. So let's talk a little bit about the gift of tongues. If you were to read in 1 Corinthians 14, because 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 are all about spiritual gifts. Now, a lot of people read 1 Corinthians 13 on its own because they love this idea of love, right? 1 Corinthians 13 is all about spiritual gifts being useless if they're not used through love. And so the gift of tongues, here's what we see in 1 Corinthians 14 if we were to go into it. I, You can mark this down and go there. I don't have time this morning. But 1 Corinthians 14, 22, the gift of tongues is a sign to minister to unbelievers. So some of you here at New City Church have the gift of tongues. We as a church and as a community and as we see the scripture don't think that it plays a part in corporate worship. We don't think that it's appropriate. In fact, the Apostle Paul, it's the whole reason why he wrote 1 Corinthians 14, is because there was this idea that the gift of tongues was a more desirable gift than any other gift, that it showed something about your maturity if you possessed that gift. But we see in 1 Corinthians 14 that that's not true. So there's two, two purposes for the gift of tongues, it says. One is to, to, to present the gospel to unbelievers. So I've heard several stories of people, even this past week as I've been studying this, of people that have went to foreign countries that speak a different language to them, that have been empowered for some people for a week at a time or for a moment, maybe for an hour, to speak a language that they didn't formally know. We see this happening in Acts chapter 2, right? We see all kinds of stuff like this happening. So I think that's kind of one role the gift of tongues play. You don't have any control over that. If God's going to gift you with that and make that happen, that's cool. There's going to be an interpreter as well. There always has to be an interpreter for the gift of tongues to be a legitimate usage. The second thing is this in 1 Corinthians 14, 4 and 5, we see that it is a, a private prayer language. Some of you pray in tongues by yourself, and the Spirit interprets and intercedes for you as your prayer goes to God. That's, I've got no problem with that. I think that that's biblical. I don't think we should seek that gift, but if God gives it to you, I mean, utilize the gift that God has given you. So in our community, there's a lot of people that believe the gift of tongues is a superior gift to other gifts. The scriptures in no way say that. And like I said, let's, let's move on to the gift of prophecy. Here's the, here's the thing about the gift of prophecy. I shared a story with you guys last week about someone that prophesied over my life probably about five years ago and told me that planting a church in Atlanta was not the will of God. And so I took that prophecy and I said, thank you. I really appreciate you sharing that with me. And I took it to the Lord. And here's the thing. Sometimes when people share a prophecy with you, because, because men and women are fallible human beings, they share a fallible word with you, you take it to the Lord in prayer. And you, you, you search the scriptures and see if the word that they said is accurate or it's not. So here's, here's, here's four things I want you to remember about miraculous gifts, okay? We're going to funnel all this through that. And I don't want to freak anyone out, but this is in the word and I want to talk about it. So four things I want you to remember. Yeah, I don't have to talk about teaching. I don't have to talk about preaching. I don't have to talk about those types of gifts because it's just understood we're going to use those gifts if we have them, right? So four things. 
All spiritual gifts are funneled through love. That's why 1 Corinthians 13 is in the Bible. If, if it's not funneled through love, what does Paul say? It's like a, it's like a, a loud clanging you know, symbol, just a, just a piercing noise that's unbearable. So spiritual gifts, no matter what your gift is, is funneled through love. Second thing is this, spiritual gifts are given to build up the body, to edify the, the kingdom. And so our gifts are to be used in humility, whatever our gifts may be that God has given us. The third thing is this, is that our spiritual gifts are always utilized in agreement with God's word. They never contradict God's word. If they contradict God's word, they are not from God. Fourth thing is this, is no gift is any more valuable than any other gift. So if you're in here and you're like, Ryan, I have no idea what spiritual gifts is. This is the first time I've heard this. Hey, it's cool. You're in a great place. God has promised that he gifts us. He gives us spiritual giftings. So we just seek the Lord. We live in community. And you know what? People begin to tell me, hey, Ryan, I think you might have this gift. You might have this gift of teaching, even though I was terrified as a 17-year-old when God called me into ministry. Terrified. I mean, like, like just, just a mess whenever I would get up and talk in front of anyone. God gifts, and he provides, and he makes that happen uh, in and through his people. So live in community with people. Your gifts will come to the surface as you do that, as you live in community. And just seek the Lord. And there's, you know, there's, there's all these spiritual gift assessments that you can take. Maybe that's a good place to start. But you can give an, an, an inaccurate view of yourself. So you can look at those things, but I wouldn't take those as thus saith the Lord. Here's the purpose of me talking about spiritual gifts. Because it's one part of how God has wired us uniquely. It's one piece of how we make up a diverse family of believers. There's this great quote that you're going to remember today, okay? You're going to remember this quote because I've remembered it since the first time that I heard it. And you're also going to remember it because I'm going to make you say it to your neighbor. All right, here's the quote. I need you, you need me, we need we. Pastor here in Atlanta, Andy Stanley, once said that and it just stuck with me. I need you, you need me, we need me. So I want you right now to turn to your neighbor and declare that. There's a little more energy picking up. I mean, I just picture the guys building the wall in Nehemiah being like, yeah, I need you. You need me. We need we. Let's build this wall. While they're fighting, you know, Tobiah and Sambalot, they're, they're fighting them off with the sword. But the reality is, is that we absolutely need one another. That I need you, you need me, and we need we. Now, here's the truth. God doesn't need any of us to build his kingdom. He needs absolutely not one of us, but here's what God does in his kindness is he invites us to participate in the building of his kingdom. And that we see as we participate in building his kingdom in very different ways that our hearts come alive, that we were made to build his kingdom. And we're made to build it in different ways. So here's what I want to leave you with with this first point. Is the kingdom of God needs you to be you doesn't need you to be me or anyone else. It needs you to be you. And so we need to earnestly pray and seek the Lord for us to be comfortable in our own skin. There's a group of ladies here at this church that pray for me. None of you know that they pray for me. They pray for me every single day. And if, I can tell you, if they're, not, if they're not using that gift of intercession and praying for me, my life's probably going to look a little bit different. I don't know how. Some of us have... Real public gifts, some of us have real hidden gifts, real visible gifts, real invisible gifts. 
All of them are necessary in the body. So let's go to point number two here. Every person in the kingdom is equally essential. Every person in the kingdom is equally essential. So I, uh, I like to do home renovation projects. Anyone else in the house like to do that? You like to dabble around with things with a hammer, bust things up, break them, try to make things look better as best as you can. Last summer, I got into a renovation project that was way over my head. I'm talking like, so here's the deal. I got all these cabinets that were given to me, and I said, you know what? I'm just going to put some new cabinets in our house. And so I just started putting the cabinets in our house. I started ripping the old ones out, and I was like, ah, you know, I'm going to take out the ceiling. I'd really like to have some different lights in here. So I cut this 14 by 8 hole in our kitchen ceiling. And then I said, you know, the refrigerator right here, it just takes up too much space. Let's move our pantry wall back 13 inches and put the refrigerator in the pantry. And on and on and on. The project just kept growing until I got to this place as I'm doing it. So bear in mind this. As I'm doing this project, I've got three children that at this time are, I think, five and under. Three children that are five and under, and the kitchen is locked up for a month. I was like, babe, it's going to be beautiful. Trust me, it's going to be so, it's going to be amazing. So I get into this project, and I get in over my head, and I realize that about a week and a half in, that this thing is not going to get finished unless I call in the troops. And so I begin to make a list of all the things that I don't know how to do well and all the things that I need other people to do because their unique gifting and skill set is different than mine. Finishing drywall. Not good at finishing drywall. If any of you have tried to finish drywall in your room or whatever, you can tell, right? It looks like garbage. There's, a, there's streaks all over the place. You try to put a picture over it, you know, you try to cover it up. Finishing drywall, not my gift. Flooring, not my gift. I don't know how to cut hardwood floor and do all of that kind of stuff. Now, I can do a little bit of electricity because, you know, 220 doesn't hurt that bad. I'm just kidding. Crown molding. I can't do that. I mean, it's, it's fine. I needed people to come in and to do what they were gifted at doing. I thought I could do it myself. I thought I could live and renovate my kitchen myself. And, and some of us think that we can live in the kingdom of God without other people. We might, we, might, we might lean in one of two ways. Either we're so prideful to think that our gifting is superior and that other people's giftings aren't really necessary, or we're so afraid to use our gift and to use our personality and how God has wired us uniquely to build the wall of whatever it would be in the kingdom of God in Lawrenceville, that we're afraid to use them, that we're afraid to be ourselves. That's, that's two sides of the, of, of the ditch that we kind of jump in. But what we need to see is that we're valuable in God's sight because God is the one that has composed us, as 1 Corinthians 12 said. He's the one that's made us up. And that everyone's essential, that, that you need me to be me and I need you to be you. So let's turn to 1 Corinthians 12, verses 12 through 20 here. Uh, you know, in the book of Nehemiah 3, we see Nehemiah, God has given Nehemiah wisdom as he sought him. And he's sought to build his walls back in the city of Jerusalem, the holy city. And Nehemiah has insight that if he does not build this wall quickly, it's not going to get built. We see the opposition kind of stirring around. And so what does Nehemiah do? He goes out over the, you know, over the course of the night in Nehemiah 2 and begins to examine part of the walls. He says, okay, I'm going to need a big team to do this. 
And so he, he, he begins to, to appoint 40 different teams of people around the, the five miles of walls in Jerusalem. And he gives them different tasks. For some of them, it's rebuilding completely. For some of them, it's restoring. For some of them, it's doing gates. There's seven gates around the city. I can tell you, these gates are absolutely enormous. They are huge gates that have to be rebuilt. And you know what they do? They rebuild the wall in 52 days. 52 days, a 15-foot wide wall, 30 feet tall, five miles around. Little old Israel does this. And they do it with a, with a, with a trowel in one hand and a sword in the other. And the reason why I think they built it so quickly is because the enemy was coming. <laughs> Sambalot and Tobiah were coming to take down that wall. They wanted, they wanted uh, King Artaxerxes, king of Persia, to think that Nehemiah was rebelling against them. And so this is what they're feeding King Artaxerxes. This is what they're saying to Nehemiah. This is what they're accusing him of. And they build it so quickly that the, that the opponent doesn't even have time to gather their strategy. It's an amazing thing that God does. 1 Corinthians 12, let's look at verses 12 through 20 here. For just as the body is one and has many members, and all the members of the body, though many, are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we were all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free, and all were made to drink of one spirit. For the body does not consist of one but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I don't belong in the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less a part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would be the sense of hearing? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them, as he chose. Remember, he's the one that gives us value. He's the one that's created us. He's the one that's gifted us the way that we're gifted. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is there, there are many parts, of the body, there are many parts yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need of you. Nor again to the head, to the feet, I have no need of you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker are indispensable. And on these parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the great honor and our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty. I'm going to continue reading. Uh, which are more presentable parts do not require. I'm going to read the next verse in our last point. Uh, so, so what's he saying here? What's going on? I'm kind of already alluded to this. Every part is necessary. If one part of the body goes missing, there's a huge gaping hole in the body. So we need to learn to take comfort in our role from Jesus because he's the one that's gifted us like this. I mean, I think about Jesus, how he had the ability to see people that were invisible. And here's what I mean. I don't mean like physically invisible. I mean invisible in society's eyes. So you're thinking about building the kingdom of God. Jesus is like, hey, you need to be like this centurion soldier, this Roman soldier, this Gentile soldier. You need to be like him. Jesus says, hey, you know, Come to me like little children, weak and vulnerable. Come to me like them. He seeks out a Samaritan woman, a woman that the Jews would want nothing to do with by the fact of her race alone, but then get into her lifestyle of sin. They want nothing to do with her because she's had all of these husbands and she's still sleeping around, getting water from the well in the middle of the way. We read that in John 4, 
How about this demon-possessed man, legion, we are many. And who's going to seek that guy out? Who, who would have ever thought he would have a place in the kingdom? I mean, he's living in a graveyard. He's naked and bloody. Who wants to share life with that guy? And what happens when God comes upon his life and the Spirit saves him? What, what happens? He's, he's clothed and in his right mind. Isn't that what God does to each of us? He clothes us with his righteousness and puts us in our right mind, which is in Christ Jesus. This is exactly what he does. Friends, we all have a role to play in this, and it's essential. It's essential into the mission of God, this common mission he's called us to. So whatever it is for you, we as a church need you to live it out. We can't afford to go without a hand or without an eye or without an ear or without a foot. We need you to live it out. And those of you that have more visible giftings, and people are very aware of your giftings, you need to learn to see the people that have more invisible giftings and more invisible personalities. Because they too are image bearers of God that are just as valuable as you. That's exactly what Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians. He said, you know, the greater honor is going to be bestowed to those that have more invisible giftings, if you will. So maybe it's your personality, maybe it's your gifting, your whole makeup. We're going to throw all that in the bag together. We're going to throw you in the bag. We need you to be you. Lastly, let's land this plane here. Unity and diversity only exist when these two realities are true among God's people. Unity and diversity only exist when these two realities are true among God's people. You know what I think the greatest tool of the enemy is? One of the greatest tools of the enemy is to divide and to isolate God's people because he knows that when we're divided and we're isolated over differences that we appear to have, that we are not effective in building God's kingdom. New City Church, we need to be bigger than New City Church. It's not about building the kingdom of New City Church. It's about building the kingdom of God. So how do you speak of other people that go to different churches that may believe a little bit different things than you do as Christians? Are they brothers and sisters to you? Do you have fellowship with them? Do you pursue them? Do you pursue a relationship? Church, we got to be about that. We can't possibly build when we're divided. I love what Ecclesiastes chapter 4.12 says, and you've probably heard this verse before. And though a man might prevail against one who is alone, two will withstand him. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. A threefold cord is not quickly broken. Follow that up with a quote from Winston Churchill here. I love this quote. When there is no enemy within... The enemies outside cannot hurt you. If we are the family of God and we're the church, there are no enemies within this body. And what's that mean as we build the kingdom? Though we, though we, though we come against opposition, though we're having to build God's kingdom with a sword in our hand fighting off the evil one, he doesn't overtake us because we're together. We have this unity that no one can explain because it's a gift that the Spirit has given us. The way we build the kingdom is evidence of who God is and who Jesus has made us to be. I'm going to close with 1 Corinthians 12 here to kind of land the plane here. I love what he says here. This is verse 24. But God, uh, the second part of verse 24, but God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division in the body, 
but that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. I don't know if you've ever been to the symphony before. Ever been to a musical? You ever been to a place where there's many parts of music trying to play at the same time? God has so composed the body to be a symphony, a beautiful orchestra that 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 plays in harmony. And there's so there's some minor parts that if we don't have that part, that it's that that it sounds like a train wreck. And there's some major parts. There's people soloing, right? I mean, we got to have everything in the body. So, what are our next steps? As a church, what could this actually look like as a church? What could it be? Church, we have the freedom to be distinct, to notice differences, to notice that certain people have different gifts, to notice that certain people look differently than me, to notice that certain people are older than me or younger than me. We can notice all of those things and still be one. See, the trick that the enemy has tempted us into believing is that we can't notice those things, so we've got to be colorblind. We can't see color because then we won't be one. That's a terrible lie. That's an absolutely atrocious lie. We can see differences and still be one because it's God's spirit that makes us one. We can live in community together with people that are different ages than us. One of the things I love about New City Church is that there are people that are in their 80s and there are people that are, I don't know, how old's Isla? A couple months old, you know? I mean, this is what we're sharing community with right now. This is what, it, this is what it's like. And we can, we can live in the midst of this because God's spirit is doing a work. So the first thing is this, we gotta come to Jesus. Individually, we've gotta come to Jesus and seek him and let his description of who we are in him define our lives. And then the gift that we receive when we come to Jesus we need to live that out in everyday life. Live out the identity, the, the, the person that he's made us to be. And the second thing is this. Church, we got to invest in one another as the family of God. we got to rub shoulders with one another. We, can't, we don't just come into Richards Middle School on Sunday morning. We need to share life together because there is something in each person in here that reflects the image of God that you need for your spiritual maturity. You are missing out on a piece of who God is when you neglect to share life with other people. Other believers. We all reflect him uniquely. I'm convinced that it takes the whole of God's people with the whole gospel to reach the whole city. And that's what I want to see God do here with us. Let's pray together. Father, I'm fired up. I'm fired up because you are at work. As you were at work when you brought your people out of exile in Persia, to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem against all odds. You are at work in your people in Lawrenceville, Georgia, rebuilding the walls of the kingdom against all odds. When people say this is such a diverse area, you shouldn't plant a church here, the kingdom isn't here, all of those things, that's a terrible lie. God, I pray that you would, you would so unite our hearts to one another that we would see the beauty of Jesus Christ in one another. We would see how we all reflect him uniquely and how we all need one another because we're all found in you. Father, we love you and we pray all this through the matchless name of your son, Jesus. Amen.